0: Down speed. Hand, Mark. And Hello everyone, welcome to the first episode of the HPA's Through the Frame, captured and produced from home with any guests we have called in as we get through this coronavirus situation. With this being our first episode, I thought I'd introduce who the HPA is, what this podcast is all about, and who I am, or as Leon Silverman puts it, what is my personal brand. So let's start with the HPA. The HPA is a non-profit member association that connects businesses and individuals. There are several committees, all led by high-end professionals, dedicating their time for the betterment of the industry. I have to admit, this is the biggest thing that attracted me to this organization. All the people leading it are experts in their field, putting in time because they actually believe in the cause. Which is all about education, information sharing, recognition, and building a community. They host in what, in my opinion, is the most coveted stage for representing new technology and workflow processes in our industry, which is the Tech Retreat. This is a really cool event if you haven't heard of it. Many of the top technologists post production facilities, vendors, and studios all get together in the desert to educate everyone on their latest workflows and processes. The HPA also has an award show that happens once a year and many other meetups and education opportunities. So please check them out at www.hpaonline.com. Within the HPA, there's a committee called HPA-NET, which stands for Networking Education Technology. This podcast falls under that committee at the HPA, with me, Jesse Carosi, as your host. So who am I? I'm a... (laughs) Red Bull Drinking Enthusiastic Breakdancing Workflow Specialist. I'm the former chair of the HPA's YEP Committee and the current chair of the ASC's Advanced Data Management Subcommittee. I design workflows and lead a team creating custom software for scripted episodic television shows and feature films while rolling out daily services across the globe and establishing workflow for a finishing division at Sim. However, this podcast isn't about me. I'll be bringing in Geeks with Swagger, as I like to call them, technical creatives on the front lines, designing and rolling out new processes for production, and post. We'll break down what these new workflows or custom solutions are, and how they'll be utilized on real jobs, or how they have been, and what this means for the industry. So here with me today, as our first guest, is Ben Gervais.
1: Hey, Jesse, nice to be here.
0: All right, thank you for joining us today. So for those who consider yourself a technologist in our industry, Ben is someone you should probably know about. Ben, cover your ears, (laughs) as he's one of the most, if not the most, technical, brilliant-minded people I know that are also allowed to be client-facing. He also led the workflow on the recent Ang Lee feature, Gemini Man, delivering the movie in, let's see if I get this right, 4K, 3D, HDR, Atmos at 120 frames per second. (laughs) Is that right? Yeah. (laughs) All right, probably the most challenging workflow ever executed, in my opinion. So what I was looking to chat with you about today, Ben, was some of the workflow on this job that made it possible and also the journey that you've taken to get there and the lessons learned from these experiences and where you think this is headed. So you've got, I guess just to go back a second, you've got a background in stereo native 3D work for quite some time now, but I'm curious how did your focus begin to include high frame rates and did this have anything to do with you getting hooked up with Ang Lee?
1: Yeah. Um, Well, so as you said, I started at one point in my career working in native 3D. Actually, my introduction to 3D was actually via slow motion for 3D. So that was kind of an interesting thing because I was one of the first people to bring phantom cameras into use on native 3D photography. Hmm. Uh, and what happened on, uh, I think, one of the Resident Evil movies was that I sort of made a knowledge trade-off with Cameron Pace, Jim Cameron's 3D company, when it was around. And they came to me and they said, well, we want to do a lot of slow motion. And I at that point, I was an expert in slow motion photography using phantom cameras and things like that. And, uh, and I said, well, great, I'm curious about this whole 3D gang. So uh, we sort of said, great. And I ended up being... Uh, engineer on a second unit of that film I showed them how to synchronize the rather at that point rather finicky phantom cameras on a 3D rig and they showed me a lot of what native 3D was about so that was sort of my beginning in 3D which was just sort of via you know what essentially is high frame rate at least in terms of doing slow motion and then that Turned into uh, eventually turned into me meeting Ang uh, through something that was totally unrelated. The producer that I had worked with on Pacific Rim, and he had another producer friend, and they were looking for when Ang went, went to do Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. They were looking for, I think they put it a tech guy, and so I word of mouth got referred to Aang and I flew down one day to just have lunch with him and uh, we kind of hit it off from there.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Well, we're all here to understand a little bit more about Gemini, man. So let's get into that and how you were able to actually deliver In all these different specs, especially 120, considering software, can't natively, as far as I know, work in that frame rate and all of the other challenges that came with trying to do such a difficult job. So why don't we start and we'll go through this linearly. We'll start with camera. As I understand it, this was shot on Aerie, but it was a modified SXT camera, correct?
1: Yeah, basically Aerie never made an SXT Alexa M. They made an XTM. But what they, that was restricted to the, the old 69, 2880 wide frame that the standard Alexa had. And in our testing, what we found was, you know, Aang felt very strongly from Billy Lynn that 4K was a very important thing. Having said that, you know, the F-65 that we shot on Billy Lynn, that was compressed, pretty noisy. You know, Ang's mandate for Gemini Man was really, you know, we're shooting a genre action movie. We got to make the camera move. It's got to be able to do those dynamic shots, be it handheld, steady cam, fast crane moves, you know, strap the camera onto a motorcycle, whatever it is. So I had to shop for a new camera because the F65 is a beast, right?
0: It's a massive camera.
1: You know, we needed a camera that could do 120. We needed something close to 4K if it wasn't 4K.
0: And when you say 120, you mean base rate, not sensor rate, but not off speed.
1: They, well, as much as, you know, cameras don't really have such a thing as 120 base rate because Sempty Time Code doesn't really support that.
0: Yeah, that's why I was asking. I've never even seen that.
1: Yeah, so um, we can get into the whole nightmare that is that <laughs> part of the workflow. Sure. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it was really about just a camera that can, you know, that can drive a sensor at 120 frames a second and capture that information. Mm-hmm. We tested a bunch of cameras. It came down to, you know, everybody really liked the color. You know, that's the typical Alexa selling point is, you know, everybody loves the way skin tones look. You know, all the cameras Mm -hmm. tend to match really well out of the box. Like, it's just, it's great. But we felt like the 2880 really didn't hold up when we did the up res to 4K. I see. Um, so we tested a full-size si- full SXTs and, and that sort of thing. And what we found was the 3.2K aperture seemed, when we were shooting uncompressed, seemed to really be able to hold up in terms of doing the uh, upris. So uh, we settled on that, and Aerie had come to us very early in the process. And uh, they saw, when we were in post on Billy Lynn, Bronze Kraus from Airy was super enthusiastic about what he saw, and he just basically looked at us and he said, "What do we have to do to make sure that you use our cameras on the next time you do this?" You know, it was kind of like we're going to pull out all the stops, whatever you guys need, which is an, an amazing level of support. So then I went back to them. And I said, "Okay, well, I need it, some sort of camera that can give me a 3.2K uncompressed signal, but it needs to be under six pounds, and it needs to." you know, really help us out shooting this movie. And so they went back to the drawing board and they looked at modifying maybe the Alexa Mini, but at that point, you know, the, the hardware really wasn't in those cameras to do anything beyond like the 30 frames, very raw that the Mini can do. So they said, okay, well, we've got the M's. I had a lot of experience with the M's already and they sort of Frankensteined this SXT version of an Alexa M together For us, They sort of took a bunch of guts from some SXTs and took a bunch of guts from some old XTMs. And there was, you know, poor David Zucker at Aerie uh, (laughs) was sort of in charge of it. And he just had to kind of, you know, so he made nine cameras, uh, seven of which we had with us. And then two of which, uh, one stayed in Austria where they do the software development. So they had a test bed to try things with.
0: That's great. Or if you, if you have some type of issue, like a bug that you catch or an issue with the camera, they could try to reproduce it on their end.
1: Exactly. And then one stayed at the nearest Airy rental house to us, which in most cases that was really close when we were in Columbia, that was actually with us. They just sent us the one, but uh, it was, they sort of gave it to me and they said, here's the deal. We promise it'll work at 120. We make no warranty (laughs) whatsoever as to it. We're operating in any other frame rate. You know, this is custom firmware just for you. You know, try not to look at the camera wrong because wow. it might fall apart. <laughs> uh, but we we felt pretty confident with it. You know, and the support that gave us was really great.
0: And at that time, ARX wasn't even. You didn't get some early version of the Codex ARX conversion software, right?
1: No, no, we were all stock uh, SXR drives, and uh, we had a lot of them. I think at one point we had. Hundred
0: and twenty of them. Wow. Okay. Something like
1: that. There was a
0: lot. Okay. Let me. I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. Three point two k. Yay! I get to pull out my data calculator. <laughs> three point two k. Airy raw at like let's say three hours a day. Uh. Yes. Yeah. Now, not including. Don't count the two camera situation for each rig. <laughs> Why not? I had to. <laughs> well, yet, yeah. Um. Well, I'm just trying to calculate like the terabytes an hour because even at like one cam. Three hours a day of of material is about 2.5 terabytes a day. That would be – that's at 23.98. So times five to get to 120 is (laughs) times 2.5. It's a lot. 12.5 and then multiply that by two because you have two cameras on – on it, were you we really getting 25 terabytes a day? Ish, uh, the,
1: the super heavy days would, would I would say we weighed in around that. Typically, we shot a little less than that. Um, okay, and I there, there might be a math or there somewhere, but yeah, it was, it was a lot. And in terms of budgeting, I definitely budgeted as if we were going to do that amount of data every day.
0: Um, wow, yeah, it's a lot. When I worked on the movie Alpha, we were getting 13 terabytes a day, and it changed everything. Everything that we wanted to do to get things turned around from the dailies perspective and the data management perspective on set, everything changed. Everything. Like, yeah, you're doubling. You're, that's ridiculous. Yeah,
1: you really you have to look at a problem like that as a, not a serial problem. You you can't. You have to parallelize everything. And that was you know big thing when I'm doing a budget for a project like this. It's not about getting the fastest whatever. It's about getting five or six of Even if they're not the fastest, whatever, because as soon as you parallelize that operation, it gets so much faster than getting something that's a little bit faster in terms of megabytes per second. Yeah. So we had three codex vaults, each with two drives in them each. We didn't use the codex to do anything other than just card readers. They had 50 gig Ethernet cards in them, and we just dumped that
0: stuff straight onto
1: our sand the second the cards came in.
0: So, Oh, so the cards actually traveled from set. How how far was the, the lab at that point then? Uh, it was usually. In the- I guess you said you had a lot of cards, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we kept, like I said, at one point we had under 120
1: cards or something. And, um, <laughs> yeah, we, we had, you know, a small fortune just in cards. But uh, typically we we're in the production office. Uh, when we we're in Savannah it was production office. when we We're in uh, Budapest. It was the production office. when we We're in Columbia what we did was we set up like a data management station. What I did was I pounded the pavement, I had my fixer pound the pavement in Colombia until we found a 10 gig internet pipe, which was its own special brand of paint, Hmm. just to get that, because I had done some research, and I was like, oh, there's all these undersea cables that land in Cartagena, awesome. That means there's gotta be a data center there. No.
0: Yeah, we went through uh, that on Narcos, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but
1: we did eventually find a 10 gig circuit in a building in downtown Cartagena and we rented an office there and we just set up a guy and with the, with the card readers and some local storage, but he was uploading our neg every day back to the production office that we had in Savannah. And he lived in the data center. Well, it was just like he office. worked every day. He, in was, he was in an office. Like I said, we rented a 10 gig circuit that was just hooked into an office. Um,
0: I'm shocked that you were able to find that in an office.
1: I uh, it was it was a newer building. You know, we still that's amazing. I, I don't like to take no for an answer. I just kind of <laughs> pull out and I'm like, listen, you've gotta find this. You gotta make this happen. There's gotta be somewhere, you know, if there's if there's these cables going through this city somewhere, they come out of the ground, they get put into some sort of, you know, rack where they're then distributed around the rest of Columbia or wherever the hell it is. Find out where it is, you know. I had people on Street View looking at like, oh, you know, I had people looking at FCC filings about where the undersea cables were going to and like, oh, okay, it lands here. It's owned by this company. Let's look up who owns that company. You know, four shell companies later, you finally find the company who's actually responsible for it. It's like a whole, you know, the uh, detective job just to find these people. And then, you know, eventually you get talking to somebody who's like, yeah, actually we have fiber run to this building, so we could just patch you in over here and, you know. It was a little down to the wire, but, uh, no. but we did get it to work. Yeah. In
0: that location, there were no vaults?
1: No, we shipped, we shipped the vaults. The vaults didn't have any local storage. Like I said, we just used them as card readers. Um, what I had done was I had specced out specifically for this data manager two computers that were just dedicated to doing backups. They, each of them had, uh, I don't know, 36 SSDs in them. So he would keep a couple days' worth. On each of these machines, plus they were working as
0: servers to upload to Savannah. And what did you use to do the upload? What software, if you don't mind me asking?
1: Uh, We ended up using Expedat actually, which is it's a little hacky. Um, It's it's kind of it's not a typical software package that a lot of people in our industry have used. But what we found was we were able to tune it. um, uh, You know, a lot of these software packages work quite well if you're over. like a Soho net or you know, some sort of like dedicated media type system, mm-hmm. that was only going to add another layer of complexity to what we were already trying to do. So we were like, let's just get public internet because getting dedicated fiber set up, you know, in the time frames we had was just not practical. So that software, when you're able to just you're able to just start a bunch of threads uploading different packages all at the same time, you can sort of parallelize it again. And then you just hammer that 10 gig connection. You don't get a full 10 gigs out of it. And a few times we got shut down because they thought we're either hosting or get, receiving a denial of service attack. So the internet provider would step in and just cut off all the traffic. We'd have to call them up and be like, hey, dude, no, we're really trying to do this. <laughs> <Not sure. laughs> but uh, eventually uh, we got the, the kink sorted out of that. And then it was we were seeing a practical, I would say, uh between four and six gigabits okay. uh, of actual bandwidth over public internet which was really great
0: i see and then you had someone waiting to receive the media where uh we had a colo in savannah that
1: uh then somebody would just shuttle drives from there to the production office we weren't able to get fiber to the actual production office so i see That was the last step of the run
0: gotcha yeah, it seems like contacting data centers for things like that has become kind of normal over the past five to six years. I feel like before any time I would call them, they I would have to explain the situation and, and speak to five people and try to get them to cut me a deal.
1: You know what, though? They still hate to do it. They hate it. Oh,
0: they do. And they, they, what they don't like when they talk to me is the short-term contracts.
1: Yeah, that's it. They, they're like, oh, you're not interested in signing up for five years? Well, fuck you. Yeah. We can swear, right? That's okay. Uh, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they they couldn't be less interested most of the time. Usually you have to play on the fact that you're doing something – you're a movie, right? You're doing something cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's what I've done on a bunch of them. And, the, and then they find out, oh, wait, like this isn't as exciting as I thought it would be by the end of the <laughs> no, movie. <laughs> like even in, uh,
1: when we were on Billy Lynn, actually, the we were next door to a data center. And we didn't have fiber in the building next door. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was like, I know there's bandwidth in the next building over. Let me just throw a fiber line over the fence and you can hook it up. They're like, we don't do that. It's like, really? Come on. Like, I'll just, we'll just pay you, but like, no interest. Right. don't oh, know. You got to go to the pool. Somebody has to install it. You got to be on the list. It'll take six months to get hooked up. Oh, yeah. Right.
0: For sure. Okay. Continuing down this linear train, we've got the media on a drive. It gets to the, lab, which is in the production office there, I assume you had quite an operation going.
1: Yeah, um, you know, really when, uh, and we sort of, we learned a lot of lessons from Billy Land in terms of storage and managing all the data. That was where we kind of fell over on the first one was just as much as we anticipated we would have a lot of data to deal with. It was so much data, you know, we ran into problems with SSDs just wearing out. Not having time to do garbage collection to the point where they're slowing down. And now you've got an SSD that should be able to do 300 megabytes a second and it's doing 20. Yeah. And that's not cool when you've got 10 people that are hammering it 24 7. So we really dramatically scaled up the storage end of what we were doing. Um, I ended up not going with a typical media and entertainment vendor. I went to a company called Penguin Computing. They do a lot of supercomputing stuff. I see. We had two separate sands. It was important to me that they be separate, so that if one of them fell over, we could still work on the other one. I see. Um, so we had one for SSD. We had uh, 300 terabytes of usable SSD space on enterprise SSDs that was, you know, redundant as all get out. And then we had three petabytes usable uh, spinning disks, and that was all built into uh, racks of uh, like portable. Portable racks that we could tear apart and ship across the country if we had to, a drop of a hat. And that was all hooked together with 100 gig Ethernet.
0: Meaning that you could pull out drives and, and it would still be operational but lose that storage?
1: No. Um, basically, the idea was that if we, because we knew we would have to ship the lab, you know, we knew started, we were starting at Savannah mm-hmm. and some of it was going to Columbia and then some of it was going straight from Savannah to Budapest and the rest was going via Columbia to Budapest and then we maybe we would do post in New York. We needed this stuff with us all the time, also, we don't know where we're going to go sometimes. like I didn't know where we would land exactly in Budapest when I was budgeting and doing prep in Savannah, so mm-hmm. it was really about well, what if there's no elevator where we're going? yeah you know what if there's you know so basically everything every single piece of gear had to be easily movable and be able to be set up by a small team of people in a very short time frame. We had to make the move. From each location, we only had four or five days. I see. So it's really about if you already build the stuff into those sort of military-grade, you know, ruggedized racks
0: Mm -hmm.
1: that are, you know, in pieces, it takes up a lot more space. But what it means is you can literally turn it off. Somebody pulls out the cables, stuffs them into the case, puts the lids on, and
0: ships it. Yeah, it's great. You don't have
1: to pull. You don't have to unrack stuff. You don't have to do any of that. You
0: know, no, there's no screwdrivers involved. Well, I guess, I guess, but you're talking about the storage part of it. But then you've also got. Well, I guess, what were you using for the daily software and that kind of a kit? It wasn't. I assume it wasn't a stand up kind of cart situation. Were you at a desk? No, no, no,
1: it was all, so basically we had built, wherever we go, we sort of build our sort of ghetto data center, Um, and Savannah in the production office, what we had was, we had taken over an old elementary school, they had just closed it a few months before, and moved the kids to a new school, (laughs) so we had a school, we had a school, we had a cafeteria, so what did I do, We, we moved as much of the stuff out of the way in the cafeteria as we possibly could, it already had a lot of ventilation, which was awesome. That's great. We rented this giant portable AC that's set in the in the parking lot. They had a lot of power because it was a commercial kitchen. And I had racks set up inside the kitchen. And then we built a theater with a 12-foot screen and, uh, and the 120-frame projectors and the whole circus in the cafeteria proper. Hmm. Um, And the workstations were all sort of in the aisle that was between, that was the cafeteria but outside of the cinema that we built. So we basically four-walled a post facility in there. And then in Budapest, uh, we ended up going to uh, Origo Studios. And they already, they used to have a photo cam there. So they already had their own post house. Their data center was basically empty. They had a couple theaters, so we just rented the space from them. I just said, okay, well, I need two aisles worth of rack space. I need this much for power. I need whatever. We just came in, dumped all our stuff in there, used one of the theaters, replaced their projectors with ours, and away we went.
0: Wow. And so right now, we're not talking about anything once we get after the offline cut. What we're talking about, I assume, with these setups is to be able to generate dailies, Host reviews the next day or whenever you want to host reviews, is that correct?
1: Yeah, we used uh, we used base light to uh, generate dailies. Um, we were going to use daylight, but daylight has a well, it doesn't support stereo. Was the big one. I see. Otherwise, we would not use daylight. But hmm. uh, so they they, uh, filmite was very generous to us and worked with us in terms of making sure that we would have enough uh, base lights. So. We had a, a full-size base light. what do they call it, the Baselight, uh, it's not an 8 anymore, it's an X. So oh, we had okay. a Baselight X, yeah. and we had a couple, we had a Baselight 2 and a couple render nodes, and our uh, our dailies tech, as you know, is uh, Daniel? Young Daniel George. Nice. So, right. uh, so he did a lot of the driving of that, but we had a whole team, there was, there was a few people there. And, I see. Uh, and were you using BLGs by chance? We were actually. Um, yeah. I don't like to restrict the DIT that's doing the live grading on set to just CDLs. Yeah, I, you know, I know when I'm sitting in that position, or when I'm sitting at a desk and I'm coloring, if I'm restricted to just CDLs, particularly when you were trying to work with curves, it's just it sucks, right? Like if you've got sort of an S curve on everything already, then you can kind of make it work, but I wanted to give DIT, uh, her name was Indy. I wanted to give her and and uh, our dp the freedom to sort of you know really sink their teeth into the look if they wanted to if they wanted to just do whatever they could too so blg's really helped to be able to do that because we could she could kind of change the order of things and you know bake
0: in what she wanted when she wanted that's great yeah there was a job i worked on a while back where the final colorist came to set for the first two weeks to spend that time with our dailies colorist and she was able to try to get him to create the looks using BLGs in a way that she would try to get to that same place and uh I don't know she seemed to think that that was a big deal that helped her once she got to final grading but what I we ended up at first we were actually delivering the dailies in log, and then you could turn off or on the BLG in the offline edit. But then the visual effects editor complained that trying to pull keys, even though it was DNx115, was was not as clean. So we ended up baking those in.
1: Well, and then you have to deal with the whole wonderful world that is Avid color management, haha, if you can call it that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the um, yeah, we. Uh, we, but we did actually, we monitored in P3, um, pretty much every screen on set and in post we set up as P3, which meant that at least we had a little more, you know, it was a little bit closer to the end product than it would be if you were monitoring it in 709 or something like that. So, Interesting. So uh, that, that definitely helped us because we're only dealing with one color space.
0: And all this, this is all the way back to set with the DIT, they're all live grading in P3. Yeah, every monitor was set up for P3
1: except for the monitors that nobody was supposed to look at for color. And then we just put big, you know, the typical big nasty note on the top of this monitor. Like, if you think you can tell color on this monitor, forget it. <laughs> uh, That's but, great. But, uh, you know, most, most people, uh, the people Aang chooses to work with are pretty, you know, there's not a lot of that sort of hand-wringing about these sorts of things. They're ready to sort of trust the people involved to the degree that it's like, okay, well, this monitor doesn't look quite right I'm not gonna freak out I'm just gonna ask a question during dailies but that's the other thing we did is that every day we screen dailies from the day before so we did old-school proper dailies except when we were in Columbia um, so literally on uh, the end of day two after you're done shooting and Ang is pretty pretty adamant that if you can go to dailies you should go to dailies the only people he doesn't like going to dailies are the actors it, whether you're a PA or whether you're, you know, the DP or whoever, you're always welcome in dailies. So we've got, you know, like I said, a 12 foot screen in there and the whole full 120 4K 3D setup. So wow. they can go in, they can sit down, they can iterate and they can learn because so much of this this format is about learning from what you shot because it's not like shooting 24 frame 2D it's really important to iterate on what you're doing and the only way to do that is to see it you know sort of in its full glory so that you can understand the decision how the decisions you're making on set impact the final product because obviously we don't have any monitors on set that can show us 4k 120
0: in stereo i see and now because you're also projecting that in 3d obviously the dailies process would have included some work on that end of things that normally you may not deal with during the dailies pass right yeah there's um
1: you know in, t- in terms of typical dailies turnaround you know we do the the standard rendering you know we render 60 frame media for uh for the avid because that it does have some 120 features now but even then in stereo i would be a little iffy on how well that works you see so uh, but at the time we were planning this and you know we went into uh testing in october of 2017. so uh You know, none of those features were really ready. And uh, so we started uh, with, you know, yeah, you got to turn everything around. You've got to render the dailies in 120 and in 60. At least, thank God, Pix takes 60 because the last thing I want to do is upload Pix to a studio and have to render yet another, you know, deliverable. Especially because we have an extra step, too, is because we're changing the frame rate for those outputs for the Avid and for Pix we don't want to just drop frames to get there cuz it looks a little too jittery and it makes it look like a skinny shutter cuz it does i see right yeah. you think about exposure time at 120 we shoot 120 frames with the 360 shutter or as close as we can get to it so that works out at 24 frames same exposure time as a 72 degree shutter so you know it's got that sort of staccato look if you just drop frames so we use uh a piece of software from uh, reald called true motion and what that does is it blends the frames back together it doesn't do any optical flow because optical flow really doesn't play nice with uh stereo footage it invents different information in both eyes and then that's it tears your eyeballs out so um so we had a render firm that would just deal with doing this frame blending to get us
0: our 60 frame version as well. And so the base light would have been set up for 60, the project was set up for 60 frames a second, but you brought in the 120. Were you ever concerned about the fact that I've had something like a lit pixel show up and if I'm only watching on an HD monitor, I might not see it, but if I look at a 4K screen, I can. And I'm just thinking about the frame rate in the same kind of way, were you ever worried about that end of things, always yeah. we're
1: always worried about the one of the pro. Well, it's it's a good thing and a bad thing. You know, this 120 kind of cuts both ways. There are some really nice upsides in that if you have a stuck pixel for one frame, guess what? It's 120 frames a second. Nobody's ever going to see it. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, even think about it in terms of even if you're watching it at 120, which we are in the dailies room. Mm-hmm. Right, we're watching full, the base latex can do 120 k stereo um, through the projectors. But yeah. if you blink, the typical human blink is like four frames at 120, Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So you just miss like a bunch of stuff. So, um, and then the, the workstation that Daniel's on, it, it is only 60 frame capable. It's a 120 project but you set up the base light to output 60 frames. And the way that that works is it just, it knows to play every second frame when you hit the play key, but you can still scrub to any individual frame, which is nice.
0: But then how are you playing out to the 120 projector if it can only play out at 60? Well, that's the, that's the base light two. Oh, okay.
1: um The base light X has uh, the whole bunch of video cards and it's got, uh, it can do the full 120 4k stereo. Okay. Understood. Um, so, he would typically work on the Baselight 2, and we would set up the Baselight X to do, uh, to cache the timelines as they were built so that they were ready for playback. So at the end of the day, what would happen is I would come back from set a little bit early. Mm-hmm. I would sit there and scrub through and just review what we had for dailies that day, and then we'd watch them with Aang. And so any of the important stuff, we had a whole bunch of eyes in the room rather than just one dailies tech who has enough on
0: their plate. And I assume this had to be the solid state drive array that you talked about, not the other one, right?
1: Well, both systems were capable of full playout. Typically, we actually cache locally to the base light, and at that point, that base light had spinning disks, so it was capable. Um, base light made or film light made a a format for us that was an eight bit four two zero version of you know their sort of mezzanine format that they use internally for caching, which in terms of yeah, it's not full, you know, full fanciness, but it's mm-hmm. enough that you see anything that's going to be a problem. And then if you do want to look at it, you know, you can just scrub to that point and look at it in uh, in 10-bit or 12-bit or whatever you want
0: to look at it in. I see. And throughout this whole process, we've been watching everything in SDR, correct? Yes. Okay.
1: Yeah. The HDR didn't enter into it till post. In our I
0: see. Case. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that kind of covers all the way through dailies. That's amazing. Were you also... With that same gear turning over visual effects pulls, and I guess you don't need to do stereo pulls because it's native stereo or native 3D, but for VFX.
1: Yeah. So the visual effects pulls, the first one started towards the end of production. And then, you know, obviously once we got into post, they came pretty hot and heavy. So, um, we, you know, we approached each vendor. We made them aware of the issues. Obviously, they were somewhat aware when they got the contract of what they would have to deliver and you know what resolution, and what format. I would say the the hardest part of the process, in a lot of ways, was that a lot of these places, their data IO is just not up to the job. Yeah. You know, our our friends at Weta had to get a bigger pipe. Uh, <laughs> so, you think Weta? They? They're the biggest VFX size in the whole world. You know, like yeah. But they only at that point they only had a one gigabit internet
0: pipe Well, for a lot of jobs, that's pretty fast. <laughs> yeah, for a lot of jobs.
1: When we're when we're when we're sending them emails, like, hey, we've got fifteen terabytes ready for you today, and we'll have another fifteen tomorrow. One gigabit is not going to do it.
0: yeah Because these were obviously EXRs, I assume, right? That you were turning. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So um, at that point, it's really you know you got to have the conversation. Do we really want to get into this situation where you're putting tapes on planes to New Zealand? That's not very practical. Yeah. So it really
0: had to come down to just making it work in terms of bandwidth. So were you giving them BLGs that they would apply to the shots that they would then turn back over to offline? It depended on the vendor.
1: Some vendors, typically a lot of the smaller ones. So we had a small in-house team. Uh, we there was uh, some guys in uh, Prague, the effects house there. We had Weta in New Zealand. So Weta wasn't able to directly support the BLGs. We shipped them anyway, just in case an artist wanted to put the node on and just double-check. We also shipped a 3D LUT that was the best approximation of what the BLG was. So we had a script that would go through and basically pull the BLG out. make We would build a timeline really quickly in Baselight and just render out a 3D LUT version of that that would then go in that pull package so that they had the ability to try a 3D LED to match the look. So did you
0: do that per shot, or was this an automated thing that you could drop, let's say, an EDL onto and it would do it all in a batch process? It was
1: semi-automated. We write a lot of our own tools, um, but at that point, uh, the base light was not really you can't really drive the baseline engine yet. My understanding is actually they're working on a, uh, a Python API, which is going to save my life (laughs) the next time (laughs) because then we'll be able to automate all that stuff. But uh, yeah, at the moment what would happen is that, and this is where we get into the funniness of not having base rates and things like that is that really every shot becomes this sort of the effects shot for dailies, right? Because it's all off speed and you've got to deliver 60-frame media to Avid, what you have to do is your footage comes in, the camera's writing a 24-frame base time code, running it at five times speed. Sometimes the time code is the same between the left eye and the right eye. Sometimes it's not. Hmm. So sometimes both cameras start recording at the same time on the same frame. Sometimes they don't how do you deal with that? It's it's a nightmare. It just makes your head want to explode. So we built a database that would keep track of the first matching frame in each eye at the base rate. For every shot? For every single shot. Every single time somebody pressed record on set, we had to have a line in our database to deal with that.
0: So and because it is variable, that's Daniel or someone, a human essentially looking at it. And, yes. Wow, okay. Yeah. So that's, that's not a fun job. Um,
1: <laughs> but uh, you know, once we have that information, mm-hmm. then we can automate the rest of the process, right? But you know, the Avid, it's working at 60 frames. Well, it doesn't want 24 base media. It wants 60 base media with 60 frame code, right? All the sound stuff is coming in. We decide, OK, well, the sound stuff's going to have 30 frame code. At least we can just double the frame number and we get 60 frame code of that, fine. But, you know, you're dealing with all
0: these disparate time bases. How did, you even, how did you even do that, though, for the sound? Like, if you bring sound in that was recorded that way into Avid and try to, or even bass light, I wouldn't think it would line up, no? It does. Um, when, when you build a 120
1: project,
0: okay. The, th- the thing that a
1: lot of people forget about sound is that it's, when you think about sound and time code, it's scary as fuck. When you think about sound and samples, all of a sudden, everything makes sense. And what you have to do is remember that sound actually doesn't care about time code sound only cares about samples and so when you make a 120 frame timeline in base light, what it does is it says, okay, if you've got forty eight kilohertz sound, then it's essentially dividing forty eight kilohertz by one hundred and twenty per second, and it knows how many samples per second it needs to play back
0: hmm okay
1: so you know, it's really just a matter of having a time codes so that you have a place to look when you're doing the sound sync from the slate, right? You have to do a visual, yeah, it makes sense. visually line it up. Um, but once you've got that down, then you can get the whole ball rolling. But what happens then, it means that your time code in the Avid, there's no resemblance whatsoever to your time code on your camera media because we had to start every, every single shot starts with zero frame code. So that's where the database comes in. So our Avid editor is sending us an EDL in 60 frames. We have an application uh, on Billy Lynn. It was running on Google on, uh, it's a long story. It was a lot of JavaScript. (laughs) Um, And then on on this job, we actually built it in shotgun. And uh, he'd send us an EDL. We upload it into our code that basically does lookups so it takes the offset from the beginning of the shot, looks how many frames it is at 60, doubles it to 120, figures out, based on the starting matching frame of the original camera media in each eye, spits us out a left and right eye EDL that we can then conform in the baseline.
0: That makes sense, though. Okay.
1: It does. It sucks, but it makes sense.
0: It's, it's, it's super inconvenient, <laughs> but makes sense, I guess. <laughs> Okay, going back a second, though, to the archival side of this, you didn't use the vaults, did you? No, no, no. To do As details? I said,
1: uh, we had special vaults made. They literally had no, the only thing those vaults had in them was a motherboard, two card readers, and a network card.
0: I um, see, okay. Yeah. They
1: were really just glorified card readers, and the only reason for that is because, for don't ask me why, but apparently we can't just get codex software to load onto our own machines. Little little dig in there to my friends at Codex. Uh, (laughs) uh, We needed something that would just offload cards quickly. So that's Mm -hmm. what those did. Once, because we had these two separate SANs, we had a flash SAN and a spinning disk SAN, and they both could do multiple gigabytes a second in terms of speed, and we had the whole thing hooked up with 100 gig Ethernet, so we had tons of bandwidth to go around. Each drive would get copied onto both the spinning disc and onto the flash so now we had three copies we had the one that was on the original media the one on each of the fans and then mm-hmm. as, soon as and we would check some the copy that uh, check some all the copies check some all around for everybody and then uh and then we would immediately start writing tape yeah and so we had a tape robot that had uh that had four drives in it and it would just chug away 24 7 Turning out many, 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 many tapes. And yes. uh, <laughs> we bought a lot of tape. People, people at HP liked me for a little while. Um, I bet. But uh, then, uh, so yeah, that was really our backup. You know, we got two copies of the NAG, then we send one off to the studio and we keep the other one with us.
0: I see. Okay. So that was everything up until we get to the offline. I've heard a story, and considering that you built out all this stuff during the, the front end, this seems to make a lot of sense to me, but I heard a story, and I'm curious if it's true. That when you were looking to figure out who to work with for posts, you know, for online color and deliverables, et cetera, considering it was 120 and all of the other buzzwords, I'll spare everyone again, (laughs) um, that you got quotes from traditional post facilities and they came back and were like, oh, it's going to cost this many millions of dollars. So you just said, this is ridiculous. I'll just build it myself.
1: Uh, is that, that, that's somewhat true, um, you know, okay. <laughs> come back in favor of the, the traditional post house, um, I don't blame them, uh, you know, we're, yes, it's all order for one job, it's, it's, this is an industry full of difficult clients, and I am possibly one of the most difficult clients you could have. And for somebody like me to walk into your facility and say, okay, well, first of all, I want to be able to do dailies all around the world in 124k 3d. So mm-hmm. I need a post house to basically travel with me. And a lot of your stuff doesn't support the workflow I'm trying to do because it's so new. Mm-hmm. So I need to be able to take down any piece of your equipment at a moment's notice to do a firmware upgrade because of a bug we discovered that doesn't affect 24 frames. And I need to use all your storage because how many post houses have more than three petabytes of storage that they can just, you know, give to just one client? Yeah. Nobody. Yeah, right? Exactly. We would just basically go in and take that whole place over and they wouldn't be able to service any other clients while we were there. Yeah. So basically, we have to carry the cost of all their staff, all their equipment, all our staff for what amounts to we, ended, we were in production and post for that was basically two years. So, mm-hmm. of course, it's a ridiculous number. It doesn't make yeah. sense for them to, you know, and they've got to make money. They're like, sure, they're nice people and they like to do generous things occasionally, but no company is going to be like, yeah, sure, just take over this whole post house for two years and we'll just cut you a deal.
0: Yeah. I remember when you even came to us to talk about the gear aspect and you were like, do you want to, you know, <laughs> take, take this back at the end of the job or even during the initial acquisition of it. You know, we were looking at that and being like, wow, what, this is amazing. And then when this job is done, what are we going to do with all this stuff?
1: <laughs> yeah, like it, it, it's great. If, if, you know, one thing that we do have to do and we build it into our budget is we build in a sellback at the end. We have to unload all this stuff. and. It's yeah. great if you're a posthouse in the process of opening up an entirely new posthouse because we've got everything you need. We could just sell it and here you go. You've got a posthouse. But in terms of, oh, you only need this or that, you know, that doesn't really – it's not really does yeah. not help you. It doesn't help us get rid of the rest of the gear. So it's, it's a little bit of a unique Very situation. Sense.
0: And because you built this out in New York, I guess, because a lot of times colorists and online editors are – very much part of one of those traditional post facilities how did you get someone to do those roles
1: so we really had uh we didn't really have so much an online editor
0: obviously tim squires
1: ang's picture editor is very very savvy especially with stereo which is a huge help to us because you know having people work in the format as close to what you're finishing in as possible is really really important with this but Uh, the colorist we ended up using, her name was Marcy Robinson. At that When we started prepping the job, she was a freelancer, but we also have a big carrot and that's, you know, if I go to pretty much any facility and I say, hey, I'm not going to use your facility, but I want your colorist, most of the time they go tell me to pound salt. But if I, all of a sudden I say, Ang Lee, and everybody goes, <laughs> oh, well, maybe we can spare so-and-so for, you
0: know, so that, that opens up a lot <laughs> sure. of doors. Were you essentially keeping up with the conform then throughout this entire process? Therefore, when you were doing reviews with shots that were coming back, you could play them in context?
1: Uh, yes and no. Um, we didn't have a running conform, as it were. Uh, that is mm-hmm. on our sort of wish list of something we would love to do. But given that we have to have this layer in between what the editors do and what we do because of the database and you know all that, it's really hard to sort of keep a running conform. So... Typically, what we would do for visual effects reviews is uh, the visual effects editor would give us a timeline that we would conform just for the purposes of that review. And sometimes it would have other shots for context, depending on if we thought we needed them or not. And then it would also have, you know, like other timelines that had previous versions of the shot and all that sort of stuff so that we could easily kind of flip back and forth.
0: Yeah, that's what I remember working with Bill on Warcraft. He was very much all about that. and We were using a base light. For that yeah,
1: too, and so. it's you know it's a good sanity check uh, for everybody involved. You know, sometimes we screw up. Sometimes uh, you know every we're all humans. Sometimes things get a little pooched. And when you're dealing with stereo and 120 and 4K and 3D, it, uh, you know, like there's a lot to go wrong so sometimes what you find is if you're able to go back one version or you're able to go back to the camera original really quickly you can check oh was that shot a little soft when we shot it you know oh we delivered this shot with the wrong color space by accident you know we pressed the wrong button when we're doing the semi automated conform whatever it was so um that really helps catch a lot of issues before they become a problem instead of you know the last thing everybody wants is to unfinal a final shot so especially dealing with the amount of visual effects that we had on this.
0: Hmm. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about the various deliverables you had and your approach to this end of things, considering the complexity on this movie? Really what we did
1: was we concentrated first on versions of different color because what becomes very important, what you realize very quickly, I had this whole matrix of deliverables, because one of the problems of this format is there's very few projectors that can show it or, some projectors can show this frame rate, but not this frame rate, or whatever it is, right? So we ended up delivering 24 frame, 60 frame, and 120 frame versions of the movie. We also had HDR and SDR. We also had a custom color space that was made for these special projectors that project our super high-end format, which is sort of a quasi-HDR type situation. Okay. Then you've got stereo versions and non-stereo versions of each frame rate. <laughs> you've got a Rec. 709 version, you've got, you know, it's just, you know, all those different variables multiply together and we, you know, I'm completely confident when I say that we delivered more versions of this feature film than any feature film that's ever been delivered because just multiplying all those together means that I, I forget how many DCPs we struck, but it was tons. We had people, like it was like this train of people rotating in and out of LA to New York. QC DCPs because it's like no one human could watch, you know, the movie 30 times for each DCP that has to get made, you know, and that's like Atmos version and a, you know, 7.1 version and a 5.1 version. So it it can get out of hand pretty quickly. So what we did was I had to figure out a way to deliver this. And what it was was, okay, we're going to keep all the media as 120 frames as long as we possibly can. So we do all our different color passes. So I do a pass for what we called the hero version, which was this quasi HDR, which ended up using PQ as the, they don't like us to call it a gamma, but it's a gamma. (laughs) Um, I'm going to ruffle a lot of feathers with that one too. Uh, And we had our SDR and we had our Rec 709 and we had oh, and then we had different brightness versions because, of course, 3D there's no standard for how bright 3D is. So we have a 48 nit 3D version, and we have a 12 nit 3D version, and we've got a something in the middle. I forget what it was. So we do all those color passes first, mm-hmm. get that out of the way, and then at that point we can send the colors tone. They've done all their work. We've got all the color baked in at 120, not baked in, but it's, it's all sitting there in different projects. We had this whole matrix of this giant naming scheme we had for all the base light projects for each version of Final Color. And then what we do is we replace the media underneath the, the base light timeline. They have this tool, I forget what it is. It's one of those base light command lines. And what it allows you to do is it allows you to swap media. Okay. And so what we would do is we would render our 120 into 60 frame media and our 120 into 24 frame media. But what we would do is we had Derek, my workflow supervisor, what he did was he wrote a tool that basically made symlinks to bring it all back to 120. So what we would do is you'd have a frame and then you'd have four frames that were still named as EXRs, but they were actually just symlinks living inside uh, the storage that would just link back to that original frame. Hmm. So that Baselight wouldn't know any different when we went and replaced the media with As far as it was concerned, it was all still 120 media. We just happened to repeat until a 24-frame version. It would just repeat the same frame five times, and then it would go to the next frame. And so it was transparent to the machine what we were doing. Then what we could do is we could tell it, okay, now render us out, baking in the color, because we, we had done all of it in linear, all the frame blending to make sure we preserved all the highlights and all that stuff. And then we'd just say, okay, render out every fifth frame. For the twenty-four frame version. Base light goes through, it only renders every fifth frame. We've got our twenty-four frame output for that version. Then we, you know, swap media to sixty, render out the sixty frame version every second frame. Wow. So, you know, sometimes you have to trick the machine into doing what you want, sometimes you have to beat the machine into doing what you want. Sometimes you need a little bit of both. We used whatever we could to, to
0: make that happen. Yeah, for sure. So I saw this at 120, HDR, Atmos, 3D, uh, but 2K. So I'm just curious how many theaters out there are actually able to play this in its full gamut, or however you want to call that. I likes to call it the whole shebang. Uh, okay, so how, um, <laughs> how to play the whole shebang. Um,
1: there's uh, Christy has a new product that they developed in partnership with our uh, Chinese distributor. They're called uh, Waja. And what I think they were doing was trying to differentiate themselves in the market in China. So they underwrote some of the development of a new projector that had the processing capability to output 124K in 2D. Need two of them to do stereo. And then they worked and we worked with GDC to make a uh, new version of a media server that could decode that, but then also could play a much higher data rate. Because one of the problems you get into is already, you know, you start with the typical standard is 250 megabits for a DCP package. That's 24 frames 2K was what that was invented for in 2D. And a lot of legacy systems are still limited to that. Or maybe you can push it up to 350, 400 if you're trying to, you know, uh, push your luck. But that's a per second data rate. That's not a per frame data rate. So the more frames you pack into that second, all of a sudden you try and pack 124K stereo into that, you're going to get potato quality at the back end. It's just going gonna, gonna to look like garbage. So I sat down with them and we sort of... Got into a little bit of a fist fight and versus, you know, what the hardware people could, people could do versus what I wanted them to do. And we settled on 2,500 megabits, which is, you know, times 10 multiplier. In reality, they only need to do half of that because it's per I, So it's okay. each server can actually do 1,250 megabits per eye. Um that says you've got one server in each machine in each projector mm-hmm. that works out. And we, and the way we ended up doing it is uh the guys at uh Rodi and Schwartz that made the Clipster, they added uh the ability to make 124k 2D DCPs, so that's all we do. We make one for the left eye, we make one for the right eye. As long as they have the same number of frames in them, the projectors play nice and, and play them both back in sync.
0: I see. Hmm. And so that movie's been finished and are you gonna go after this again and try to take on another job at one twenty and or tack on some new technology in the process again?
1: <laughs> you know, if somebody wants me to, um, you know, the, the nice thing about being a freelancer is I kinda have the ability to go go where I please. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm always looking for interesting things to do. One of the one of the lucky things being a position that I'm in is that I'm able to put new tools in front of a filmmaker. And that's really where my passion is. So, you know, if something comes along that seems like it would be a good fit where somebody needs help with something like that, then
0: that's what I'll do. I'll say, you know, when I saw this at the Dolby Vine, I went in kind of skeptical. You know, I hate what TVs do out of the box from Best Buy, and I was worried it would be something like that. Don't we all? Yeah, yeah. And the fight scene with the woman at the beginning, even where they broke the glass in that little hut, and then and later on the bike, that's when I was sold that, okay... This, this is a thing, and it just felt like looking through a window. It didn't feel like I was looking at a screen in that moment.
1: Yeah, and that's that's really what we're trying to do, is there's so many things that make a movie detached from reality, and in a lot of cases that's a good thing. That's part of what the art form of typical cinema, you know, we could call it filmmaking, is. is about making you this sort of, we talk about all the time, this voyeuristic sort of third-person viewer. What Ang is trying to achieve here is and what we're all trying to achieve is is something that's different from that. There's nothing wrong with that, but sometimes maybe it's okay to have a different kind of experience. In Mm -hmm. the case of this film, that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to make it so that you're so much in the room and you don't have a choice as a viewer as to whether you're involved in what's going on. You know, it's very, very hard to detach from that experience when you see it in its sort of full glory or close to it.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you very much, Ben. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your wisdom and knowledge as to how this was done, because it's a, sounds like a very daunting task.
1: It was, uh, you know, two and a half years on one feature. It's, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a, Mind uh, screw up for me, but uh, it's it's good. It's you know it, there's so few people in our industry who can really see a project through from like complete inception all the way through to release and having it on a screen.
0: Yeah, that number goes way more down too when you talk about people that are actually freelance that do that. There's a couple people that do that maybe for a facility if they happen to get okay. You're providing the onset cart for DIT. You're providing the cameras or you're providing dailies and then you're providing posts. but I don't know any freelancers that do this aside from you end to end.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty fortunate, and then I sort of have that opportunity.
0: Yeah, congrats. And for everyone tuning in, thank you very much for joining us on the HPA's first episode of Through the Frame. If by chance you've not heard of the HPA outside of finding this podcast, check us out at hpaonline.com. There are many virtual events going on, especially right now, providing content and education for everyone stuck at home. Please keep an eye out for our next podcast. I'll be hitting up social media soon with some info as to who the next guest will be and when you can expect to. See it. until then, that's a wrap.